0: A warning, this episode features dramatizations and discussions of death and mutilation. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. Something to note, the story you're about to hear is not a direct retelling of any single myth about Cerberus. Today's episode combines elements from a number of legends about this demonic, three-headed dog for dramatic effect. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson. Throughout history, every civilization has created their own unique tales about the creatures that stalk the landscapes of the human imagination. Each week on Mythical Monsters, we examine those stories, looking for the fears, desires, and anxieties that created these fictitious beasts. Today we're talking about Cerberus. A ghastly dog from Greek mythology, Cerberus guards the gates of the underworld, trapping the souls of the dead within. He plays a dual role in the world of Greek mythology, as both a beloved pet and a capable predator. What's most frightening about him is not knowing which way he's going to turn. You can find episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Coming up, we'll dive into the early history of Cerberus.
1: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. new season out on Spotify soon.
0: Echidna leaned against the dripping wall of the cave and gazed out at the lifeless, gray beach. The sun never shone on the beaches of Arima, but she didn't mind. She liked the rain. She flicked the tip of her speckled snake's tail as she watched her son jumping into puddles and sending up waves of sandy water. Echidna started to call out to him when she noticed a figure emerging from the mist. She ran her hands nervously through her long, blonde hair. If it wasn't her husband Typhon, then it was a god, and gods only ever visited when they wanted something— and they rarely took no for an answer. The figure came closer. It was a woman with pale skin and thick, dark curls. Echidna shuddered. Persephone, queen of the underworld, that goddess was a beautiful monster. As Persephone approached the cave, Echidna's son ran to greet her. Persephone smiled and patted the boy on the head, She stepped into the cave and seemed ready to spout some sort of pleasant greeting, but Echidna cut her off. What do you want? Persephone smiled sweetly and replied, My dear friend, I've come with a proposition. The gods on Olympus heard that you were gifted with another child. They are anxious to know your plans for him. Echidna's face flushed. Her tail twitched back and forth as she replied coldly, My plans are to keep him here with me, where he belongs. Persephone smiled again, though this time it was less sweet. From one mother to another, I assure you giving him up is what's best. He's small now, but if he's anything like his father, he'll soon be larger than either of us. Don't view it as him being taken from you. See it as him being given a duty where he can be of use to everyone. She glanced at Cerberus. Echidna wondered what Persephone saw when she looked at her son. True, his tail was a snake, he had three heads, and the hair around his head was writhing with even more snakes. But to her, he was just a puppy. All she saw when she looked at him was love. Persephone continued, "'Your last one was taken from you as well, wasn't he?' "'Orthus, was it? "'You must have known we would not allow you to keep another monster.'" Tears pricked at Echidna's eyes as she ran her hands through Cerberus's writhing fur. She looked up at Persephone and asked, "'What if I say no?' Persephone sighed heavily, The gods sent me here to convince you peacefully, but if you won't agree, Zeus has ways of making you cooperate. Echidna looked into her son's eyes. He put one of his noses up to her face, and he gave her a gentle lick on the chin. Echidna felt like an enormous hole was forming inside her chest. Would he miss her? Would he cry and whine like he did when she went out to hunt for them? After years had passed, would he forget her face? Echidna turned to Persephone and asked if she could at least say goodbye. Persephone bowed and stepped out of the cave, giving her a moment of privacy. Echidna kissed each of her son's heads and whispered, "'Go with the lady. Be faithful and loyal. Do what you are told.'" Echidna held Cerberus close and breathed in the scent of his fur. When she saw his tail wagging, she had to look away. He didn't understand that he would never see his mother again. Persephone stepped into the cave and clamped a metal chain around each of the puppy's long, snake-like necks. Cerberus began to whimper. He pulled at the chain and gazed back at his mother with a look of pain and betrayal. Echidna looked away as Persephone pulled hard on the chain, dragging him after her. Echidna watched him walk away. Even after everything the gods had done to her, she hoped against hope that her son would obey them. It was his best chance at survival. An eighth-century text titled Theogony describes Cerberus's birth as follows. And next again, Echidna bore the unspeakable, unmanageable Kerberos, the savage bronze-barking dog of Hades, fifty-headed and powerful, and without pity. The author of Theogony was a Greek poet named Hesiod. Theogony was his masterwork, an epic poem that describes the origins and myths of the Greek pantheon. In it, Hesiod claims that Cerberus was the child of the infamous monsters Echidna and Typhon. Echidna is often described as the mother of all monsters, a human-snake hybrid. She had the head and torso of a beautiful woman, but the lower half of an enormous, speckled snake. Typhon's description varies, but it usually includes multiple heads, fiery eyes, and a surplus of snakes. Together, Echidna and Typhon gave birth to some of the world's most infamous monsters, including the Hydra, the Sphinx, the Nemean Lion, and the Chimera. Among this brood of terrifying siblings, Cerberus might seem almost benign, and as time went on, descriptions of this Hell Beast would indeed become less imposing. Part of this move from terrifying monster to loyal guard dog might have had something to do with the fact that humankind's relationship with dogs was changing. Though the process of domestication began some 20,000 years ago, it is ongoing. Dogs continue to change throughout antiquity. Not only their physical bodies, but also their behavior. In the 8th century BCE, Hesiod described Cerberus as a flesh-eating, 50-headed monster. That was at a time when Greek dogs were viewed as almost wild animals. They were kept because they served a purpose, guarding the home or working with farmers to control livestock. Nearly a thousand years later, in the second century CE, a Roman writer named Apuleius describes Cerberus as a three-headed dog who is easily subdued with a honey cake. His relationship to dogs would have been very different from that of Hesiod's. In Apuleius's time, dogs were treasured pets. They were buried like members of the family and given as gifts to loved ones. That change is reflected in the way people described Cerberus, the most famous of all mythological dogs. Of course, those living in the time of Apuleius would have been well aware of the role that dogs once played. The result was an ambiguity toward canines that still underlies our relationship with them to this day. Cerberus is the embodiment of this strange pact we've made with dogs. He's not an inherently evil beast, he's just doing his job, guarding the land of the dead as he was instructed to do. That we are so afraid of him says more about us than it does about Cerberus. Heracles followed in silence behind the two hooded figures. When he'd arrived at the temple, he'd been surprised to find a one-room building standing alone on a green hillside outside Athens. He'd heard that thousands attended the Eleusinian Mysteries each autumn, but the little temple looked like it could barely hold more than twenty people. Heracles knew plenty about the mysteries, that they took away one's fear of death or changed your life and terrified you to your core. He wasn't particularly impressed. He couldn't think of anything that could be more terrifying or awe-inspiring than the many wonders he'd already witnessed. His interest in the mysteries was purely pragmatic— Participating in the ceremony was the only way he could safely journey to the underworld and complete the ten tasks his cousin had set. After he'd killed his family in a fit of madness, Heracles had sworn himself to the service of his cousin, King Eurystheus, as penance. If he'd known what a scheming donkey-clawed his cousin was, he might have found another way. Eurystheus hated him. That much was clear now. Heracles had already completed eleven of his tasks, but Eurystheus had declared two invalid. Hopefully descending into the underworld to defeat the beastly hound Cerberus would be enough to satisfy even his insipid cousin. The Hierophant and High Priestess had greeted him with a glass of frothing amber liquid. Then they led him to a dark stone staircase at the back of the temple. As the three climbed down the stone steps, Heracles began to feel a bit woozy. He was wondering what had been in the drink they'd given him when the narrow passageway opened up. Heracles looked around in awe. He'd emerged onto a much grander staircase leading down into an enormous stone cavern. So that was why the temple was so small. Most of it was underground. Far below him, a magnificent altar was flanked by huge stone statues. The sound of chanting echoed off the walls. At first, he couldn't see its source, but then he realized there were dozens of people standing just beyond the light of the brass braziers. Two robed figures emerged from the darkness, leading a pig on a gold chain, When he reached the bottom of the dizzying staircase, the hierophant directed Heracles to stand before the altar. The hierophant lit a massive bowl of incense and the room filled with smoke. The high priestess approached the altar where hooded acolytes held down the terrified pig. The animal squealed in terror. The high priestess slit its throat spraying Heracles with its hot blood. Heracles's vision wavered. The stone pillars around the room seemed to sway. He'd thought the mysteries would be nothing more than theatrics, but there was something about this huge stone cavern that made his blood run cold. The massive space felt as though it had been here since before he was born, and it would be here long after he was gone. In this place, a human life was insignificant. It was a pitiful thing that could be snuffed out in a moment. When Heracles saw the statues start to move, it took all he had not to scream. A great wind swept through the cavern. Heracles felt his stomach tighten in fear. His entire body trembled as, one by one, the massive stone figures stepped down from their plinths. Then, all at once, the noise and commotion ceased. One of the statues came toward him. It was a woman in stone robes painted blue and gold. Her face was hidden by a veil, but Heracles knew who she was, Persephone, queen of the dead. She spoke in such a calm and soothing voice that Heracles almost felt relief. I have come to give you counsel. My husband can be a stern man. He loves his dog and he believes in justice. If you ask a favor of him, he may grant it. If you take what is not yours, Hades will have his retribution. It will be a pain beyond human endurance, mind-numbing terror without end. Persephone smiled. She leaned down and planted a kiss on Heracles' forehead. Then she climbed back up onto her plinth and became still once more. The chanting stopped and the smoke cleared. Heracles found himself standing alone in the great cavern, wondering how much of what he'd seen had been real. Suddenly, a gust of wind blew out the flames in the braziers. The room was plunged into near-complete darkness. The only remaining light was a lifeless gray illumination that came from a jagged hole in the back wall of the cave. When Heracles peered into it, he could see a sloping path that descended through a rock-hewn tunnel into mist. This was the entrance to Hades. There was no going back now. Heracles took a deep breath and began his descent into the underworld. Coming up, Heracles must face the king of the dead listeners who doesn't love a good ghost story rattling chains mysteriously moving objects unfinished business i am ready for all things spooky and so is Parcast network Starting October 1st, we're bringing you the scariest, most hair-raising ghost stories ever imagined. Every Thursday on the new original series, Haunted Places Ghost Stories, Alistair Merton summons a new spine-tingling tale of wraiths, phantoms, and chilling apparitions. These stories come from all over the world, including Japan, India, the UK, and even ancient Rome. Don't miss stone-cold classics like The Kit Bag by Algernon Blackwood, a sinister account of a condemned murderer's final wish, and the lengths he'd go to fulfill it. And the Miserere, a Spanish tale of a wandering musician who hears a terrifyingly beautiful song in a burned-out monastery and is doomed to capture its notes until he dies. You can find and follow Haunted Places Ghost Stories free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, October is our favorite month and one of our busiest, so make sure to search ParCast Network in the Spotify search bar to see all our new shows.
1: This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details.
0: Now back to the story. Pericles walked for what felt like days down the steeply sloping path of cold grey stone. He couldn't stop picturing the smug way his cousin had announced his final task. Eurystheus had always been an envious little man, envious and petty. He must have known that to defy the gods would be near impossible. Perhaps he'd given Heracles such a difficult task because he wanted him to die, and he thought Heracles would be too stupid to figure it out. He thought back to the advice Persephone had given him. She'd said that those who took what was not theirs would face the wrath of Hades. But Heracles had to kill the hound Cerberus and take his body back to his cousin. How could he do that without taking what wasn't his? Suddenly, Heracles had a thought that stopped him in his tracks. Maybe he didn't have to defy the gods. Eurystheus had commanded him to defeat Cerberus, but he'd never said that he had to kill him. Perhaps that was what Persephone had meant when she said Hades was inclined to grant favors. He could ask to borrow the dog and bring it back, just long enough to show his cousin. The thought made Heracles almost giddy with excitement. He started walking faster. A moment later, he emerged from the thick gray cloud onto a steep mountain of loose gravel. Heracles steadied himself and gazed out at the landscape before him. At some point in his journey, he'd passed out of the cavern and into an entirely different world. Two enormous rivers wound their way through rocky ravines and converged beside a marshland choked with blue-gray reeds. Wretched souls wandered about the marsh, most of them wailing and moaning in a kind of blind agony. Though their bodies were those of ordinary humans, their skin was an almost translucent white, and their eyes were blank gray balls that rolled around in their heads. At the edge of the river was a dock, and there, crouching along the rocky shore, was Cerberus. The hound was far larger than Heracles had imagined, at least twice the size of a man. Its three sets of eyes were all blood-red, with yellow slits for pupils. Drool dripped from its three sets of foot-long fangs. The sight of it transfixed Heracles, For a moment, he completely forgot that he'd decided not to kill the beast. His hand curled instinctively into a fist, and he began to calculate which angle of attack would be most effective. Heracles was brought out of this warrior's reverie when a wide rowboat approached the dock. A group of ragged souls disembarked from the vessel, each one depositing a coin in the outstretched hand of the surly and disheveled ferryman. As the souls crowded onto the landing, Cerberus launched himself toward the dock. Heracles braced for the carnage, but instead of attacking, He was jumping up and down and wagging his tail. His mouths hung open in a look of playful joy. And for a moment, Heracles almost forgot that he wasn't just a dog looking for a pat and a kind word. One of the souls was that of a boy of about seven or eight. As he stepped off the dock, he turned around and seemed to notice something that had been left on the ferry. He pointed it out to an older man walking beside him, but the man shook his head. He tried to restrain the lad, but the boy broke away, running back toward the ferry. Cerberus noticed. (laughs) The attack happened in a flash. One moment, the boy was stepping onto the dock. The next, he was laying on the ground in a pool of blood as Cerberus's three heads tore into him. The old man collapsed in trembling sobs. The ferryman walked back to the boat. He picked something up and tossed it to the old man. Heracles squinted to make it out. The boy had gone back for a rag doll. Heracles shivered and turned away from the rivers. Cerberus was a strange and terrible beast. The sooner he made it to the house of Hades, the sooner he could be done with him. The convention of the hero who travels into the world of the dead is called katabasis. It comes from the Greek word meaning to descend. In this type of story, a hero journeys into the underworld to retrieve some sacred object, a journey that proves the hero's mythic status by showing their ability to overcome death itself. Any Greek character who wanted to achieve this feat first had to contend with Cerberus, who was tasked not only with keeping the dead in, but also with keeping the living out. Orpheus, the renowned musician who traveled to the underworld to retrieve his beloved Eurydice, was able to put Cerberus to sleep by playing him a lullaby. The hero Aeneas slipped past him by offering him drugged flour, and the Roman heroine Psyche offered him barley cakes, but by far the most famous hero to defeat Cerberus is Heracles. Heracles, also known by his Roman name Hercules, was a demigod who often came up against setbacks and insurmountable odds. In order to atone for a murderous rampage caused by the goddess Hera, Heracles was forced to carry out ten heroic deeds at the behest of his scheming cousin Eurystheus. In the course of these deeds, Heracles ended up defeating several of Echidna's monstrous children, including the Nemean Lion, who we've discussed in a previous episode of Mythical Monsters. Of the tasks that Heracles faced, none were more imposing than the capture of Cerberus, a feat which represented nothing less than defeating death itself. Heracles began his journey in Eleusis, not only for the practical purpose of learning the way to the underworld, but in order to show his position in relation to the gods. The Eleusinian mysteries were one of the only egalitarian cults in Greek society. Anyone could participate, and those who did were often impressed with the awesome and terrifying power of the gods. The second-century philosopher Plutarch describes the mysteries as terrors, shuddering fear, and amazement. Heracles' participation in the rituals positions him as an ordinary mortal. When he embarked on his journey, it was as a conquering hero who had already defeated eleven monsters, including three of Cerberus' siblings. His participation in the mysteries is a ceremonial way of acknowledging that despite his success, he is not a god. He will enter the underworld as an ordinary man, fighting alone against a realm of horrors beyond his understanding. Heracles didn't know how long it had been since he'd come to the land of the dead. The sky never changed. It was always the same shade of dim gray. For all he knew, it might have been months since he'd first laid eyes on the realm of the dead, or even years. In all that time, he hadn't eaten or drank. He was exhausted, starving, and he would have given his left foot just to lay in the sun for one minute. He'd wandered through the Stygian marsh where the souls of unhappy lovers wailed eternally among the stinging weeds and bubbling mud. He'd passed through the Asphodel Meadows, a field of colorless flowers where pitch-black cows wandered among the lonely cypress trees. Finally, he had come to the Plain of Judgment, where a great black palace loomed above the mesa like a thundercloud on the horizon. In the world of the living, people didn't dare mention the Lord of the Dead by name. They called him Eubuleus, giver of good advice. Now Heracles was not only going to come face to face with Hades, he was going to ask him for a favor. When he reached the grand entrance to the house of Hades, he was not surprised to see the brass doors standing open. The giver of good advice was expecting him. Heracles made his way up a long flight of black marble steps. At the back of the hall, two figures stood by a dwindling fire. Heracles approached them. When they turned around, Heracles recognized Persephone, but not the man next to her. He had a thick graying beard and the penetrating stare of someone who does not suffer fools. Heracles realized that this must be Hades. Heracles bowed deeply. Hades addressed him in a booming voice. Why do you intrude upon us? Heracles looked up into his eyes. For the first time in his life, he had trouble finding his voice. After a moment of stammering, he managed to calm his nerves enough to speak. I came for a favor. Heracles glanced at Persephone, whose lips had curved into a knowing smile. He continued, I meant to bring your dog to the court of my cousin, Eurystheus. I would not do it against your will, so I've come for your permission. Hades' expression was unreadable. He turned towards the fire and replied, You were wise to do so. The last man who stole from me has been rolling the same boulder up a hill ever since. Hades continued, I will grant your request. But know this, Cerberus must not eat the foods of the living. They hurt his stomach. You are not to use any weapon against him, only your own brute strength. If you permanently harm my dog, you will face agony like nothing in all of heaven and earth. Heracles felt his stomach clench. It wasn't using his bare hands that scared him. He'd defeated the Nemean lion without weapons, What worried him was the fact that he would have to bring the dog back unharmed. He'd never done that before. Gentleness was not one of his talents. He sighed. At least he would have the journey back to the River Styx in which to come up with a plan. He accepted the conditions. Hades' lips twisted up into a crafty smile. He replied, Very well. I look forward to seeing how you do against my hound. He snapped his fingers, and in an instant, the palace fell away. Heracles felt as if he had landed face first on a stone slab. He rubbed his stinging cheeks and looked around. He was back at the marsh near the river Styx. He stood up to his ankles in mud, and 20 feet ahead of him, pawing at the ground as it prepared to charge, were the drooling, snarling heads of Cerberus. Coming up, Cerberus turns the full force of his fury on an unprepared Heracles. Now, back to the story. Heracles surveyed the bank of the river Styx. He instinctively looked for something he could use as a weapon against Cerberus. Then he remembered that Hades had made him promise not to use one. He'd also made Heracles promise not to permanently harm the dog, right before transporting him face to face with the snarling hound. Heracles took a deep breath and adjusted his stance. The one advantage that he had was his intelligence. If he could get the dog to attack first, he might be able to trip it up and get it on its back before it had the chance to rip out his throat. Heracles waited. The dog stalked back and forth in front of him. The hound was at least 10 feet tall. Each of its three heads was at least as big as the entire body of an average dog. Its muzzle was stained red with blood, and its white fangs dripped with drool that burned black holes into whatever it touched. Its matted fur writhed with hundreds of snakes, each one a different species. A cobra poked out from behind one of its ears, and a diamond-patterned rattlesnake lashed out from its haunches. The snakes were thickest around the dogs' necks, where they formed a kind of squirming, multicolored mane. Heracles pulled his cloak tight around his chest. It was made from the impenetrable skin of the Nemean lion. At the very least, it would protect him from the snakes. Heracles gritted his teeth and called out, Here, doggy doggy. <laughs> Cerberus made a low growl like rolling thunder. The dog crouched down on its haunches. Then, with a series of barks like cracks of lightning, Cerberus leapt into the air, speeding toward the hero. Heracles ducked and rolled to the side. The dog landed face first in the mud, and Heracles dove at its necks with his arms outstretched. He managed to encircle two, but the third escaped his grasp. It bit down hard on Heracles arm. He could feel the snakes hissing and snapping at his cloak, and he watched in horror as a writhing cobra made for his ankle. Heracles released the dog, pushing it away and taking off in the opposite direction. He tore through the marsh, hearing the beast charging after him, its head snapping at his heels. Heracles knew he could never outrun the dog, but he might be able to make it to the dock. He flew toward the wooden platform with Cerberus at his heels. When he reached the edge, he stopped himself and stepped neatly aside, smiling as Cerberus careened into the river Styx. As the dog paddled frantically against the current, Heracles took all three heads under his arm. He jumped into the churning brown water and used his free hand to pull them both toward the distant shore. By the time they got to the far side of the river, they were both exhausted. Heracles knew that if he was going to get the dog up to the world of the living, now was his chance. He released his grip on the dog's heads while it was still coughing up river water. Then he seized it by its back legs and began dragging it up towards the rocky hillside in the distance. Heracles walked for miles up through narrow passageways. Every so often, Cerberus would twist his entire body and nearly knock Heracles off his feet. But still, he held on. His shoulder began to ache, and his legs nearly gave out beneath him. But he knew he could not let go even for a single second. Finally, when he thought he couldn't take another moment, he saw a light at the end of the passageway. At the sight of the light, Cerberus stopped snarling and began to whimper like an injured puppy. As they drew closer to the sunlight, Heracles realized something. This dog had never seen the sun before. He was afraid of it. Heracles suddenly felt a pang of pity tug at his heart. He sighed and stroked one of the dog's heads, trying to coax it out onto the green field bathed in bright summer sunlight. As Heracles cajoled him out onto the field, Cerberus put his paws over two of his sets of eyes. The third head he pushed into a mound of earth to escape the light. All three heads began to yowl in fear. His torso convulsed with a tremendous retching sound. One after the other, the heads vomited all over the grassy field. Heracles' eyes grew wide as the frothy bile burned through everything it touched. He grinned. He couldn't wait to bring this dog to his cousin's palace. Aconitum napaulus, more commonly known as wolf's bane, is a delicate purple flower that grows in mountainous regions of the northern hemisphere. In fiction, the plant is used for curing the bite of a werewolf, but in reality it contains a potent toxin called aconitine, which can be used to create lethal and fast-acting poisons. Ancient Greeks believed that this poisonous flower was created when Heracles dragged Cerberus out from the land of the dead and into a sunlit field of flowers. Unused to sunlight, Cerberus promptly spewed bile all over the field, and the combination of his poisonous vomit and the fertile soil produced the toxic purple blossoms. The story of the Field of Wolfsbane is a good example of Cerberus's dual nature. On the one hand, he's a terrifying monster with poisonous saliva, but on the other, he's just a dog. Even though his fur is writhing with snakes, he still exhibits those qualities that humans find so endearing. The pitiful whine that cuts right to your heart, or the fear of the unknown that we find so relatable. Cerberus gave up trying to bite the lion man once they reached the bright place. For one thing, the light hurt his eyes and made him sick. But more importantly, they weren't home anymore. His job was to keep people from leaving home. If he didn't have to do his job anymore, there was no reason to bite the lion man. Cerberus was free to trot behind him, stopping occasionally to take in the incredible assortment of smells that now surrounded him. In the city, there were a thousand different people odors and a new food scent around every corner. Cerberus wanted to be friendly to the people, but most of them ran away as soon as they saw him. He was used to that. There were plenty of people at home who didn't want to play with him either. Finally, they came to a palace like the one where Hades lived, but smaller and not black. The Lion Man led Cerberus into a big room where a smaller man was sitting on a chair. He could smell the small man's fear and it made his heart start racing. Before, the lion man had held him back every time he wanted to run off, but now he gave Cerberus a pat on the rump and told him to go play with the little man. Cerberus bounded up to the human, his tail wagging and his tongues hanging out of his mouths. The little man tried to hide, but Cerberus found him. He jumped onto his chest and took in the rich scent of fear and urine, before batting him around with his paws. He could hear the lion man behind him laughing. Finally, the lion man pulled Cerberus off and took him back out into the city. They sat together in a square filled with pigeons, The Lion Man patted his heads and gave them each a piece of cake. He told Cerberus not to tell Hades. He said Cerberus was a good boy, but it was time to go home. He said something else, too. Cerberus didn't understand the words, but when he looked into the Lion Man's eyes, he thought he understood the emotion behind them. It was empathy. The tale of the Twelfth Labor ends when Heracles brings Cerberus to the palace of his cousin, Eurystheus. Having defeated the dog in Hades, Heracles seems to have gained some level of control over the animal. He uses the dog to terrify his nefarious cousin into finally releasing him from his debt, then returns it to the underworld. Like dogs themselves, Cerberus goes from a dangerous predator to a tame creature working on behalf of its human companion. Early relationships between humans and dogs were complex and ever-evolving. They were ferocious killers that we took into our homes, and by doing so, we changed them. But it did not happen all at once. For a long time, our relationship to dogs was a tenuous balance between affection and fear. Perhaps the best reflection of this is the fact that so many civilizations in the ancient world chose the dog as a figure who would lead the dead into the afterlife. In Egypt, there was the jackal-headed god Anubis, a patron saint of lost souls who comforted the newly deceased. In Mesoamerica, the hairless gray Sholowitzquintle dog swam alongside the dead as they made their way through the watery underworld. Norse mythology had its own version of Cerberus, a dog named Garm, who guarded Hell, the Norse underworld. Death is a necessary part of life, and the ambiguous feelings we have about it are not so different from the ones we once had about canines. To those who are sick or in pain, it is a salve and also a terror. Without death, life would be meaningless. Like those early dogs that crept up to the fires of early man, we chose to let it into our lives. We live with the terror in the hopes that we might tame it. Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on Cerberus, amongst the many sources we used, we found the Ashgate Encyclopedia of Cinematic Monsters by Jeffrey Weinstock, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast Originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythical Monsters, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythical Monsters on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram, at ParCast, and Twitter, at ParCast Network. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Zoe Luisa Lewis, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Remember to join Alistair Murden every Thursday for the all-new series Haunted Places Ghost Stories. Don't miss the most chilling spirits ever imagined by authors from around the world. Follow Haunted Places Ghost Stories free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.